Hello, Dennis. Hello, Jesse. This is not love potion number nine today, but it, it is. is podcast on beauty number three. <laughs> oh, okay. I see how those two things are related. <laughs> it's not Chanel number five, beauty number three. And it's not Mambo number five. It's beauty. I know everything's numbered something. So we're talking now about the effect of beauty in the observer and why we need it. You can never say enough about beauty. All right. So without further ado, episode five of season four of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. So, Dennis, you yes. want to keep talking beauty, huh? Well, it's not just that I want to. It's there's, there's stuff to say still. I believe it. Don't you know who I am? Do you know who I am? <laughs> I'm the uh, executive director of the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. How can you, I not talk about beauty? How can are you I your own boss? From singing. No, I have a boss. I have several. All right. They're not very bossy, though, which is nice. Are you my boss? Are you uh, my dad? Uh, I used to be your boss, <laughs> I guess. I used now to be you're your, just boss in general. Your direct report. You know what's nice about being here? I had a meeting with President Minnis, president of the college here. He's just so nice, and he's so glad I'm here. You know, like he knew who I was, and he kind of, you know, recruited me. So when I go meet him, it's not just like, oh, ho-hum, some other employee. He's like, Dennis, I'm so glad you're here. You're going to bring so many great things to this place. It's, it's actually very nice to be appreciated at that level. I hey, I appreciated you here all the time. But not at that level. Yeah. You didn't be- recruit me. Give it some time, Dennis. Yeah, I know. It'll wear off once they realize the truth hey, De- of me. Hey, Dennis, do you want to work here? <laughs> <laughs> My true ontological reality will come out. All right. So we've covered a few different aspects. Do you want to give us a quick summary of the, the two things that we the two aspects we've already talked about beauty and then what we're going to uh, dive think, into today? I think you should do it to see if you remember. Oh, okay. boy. Okay, so two weeks ago, we talked about uh, a profound introduction <laughs> to beauty because you were not okay with me saying a basic introduction uh, to beauty. Yeah, yeah. But, but beauty as an objective concept or beauty, objective beauty as a concept that, you know, we can understand things are beautiful because they reveal what they are, their ontological reality. Right, and uh, that is done by an object, right? We have a subjective response to it, but you encounter the reality of a thing by an ob- by encountering the thing, right? So correct. when we talk about objective beauty, we're talking about the fact that the beauty or the thing that reveals the reality is a thing, a tangible material thing that we could call an object. And then our subjective response, which is our response to the object, may or may not be correct, but uh, the objective reality stays the same. And then, so, and, then, one. and then last week we talked about um, starting there and then allowing that to have an emotional response. And we talked about the, the, um, the mutual enrichment or like leading with the objective truth and then allowing that to enhance what your emotional reaction is because that reaction would be, I guess, a more true reaction uh, according to how we started perceiving that beauty rather than starting something, seeing something as emotionally reaction saying, oh, that's beautiful because I like it. You got that exactly backwards, Jesse. What? Yep. So... We can talk we about... We talked about that two weeks ago? <laughs> no. 
nothing wrong with an emotional response to something. And it can even begin with an emotional response. However, it has to be open to intellectual inquiry. So oh. it's, it's the mind that perceives beauty, but sometimes the beauty is encountered through the senses rather than merely through an intellectual engagement. Although there might be an intellectual oh, engagement. Oh yeah, that's right. We talked about well. that towards the end with what Bishop Barron was talking about. Right. So if you have Got a beautiful it. experience of the most beautiful liturgy you've ever seen, you may not have been doing an intellectual analysis all the way through. All you know is, I smell something beautiful, I see something beautiful, I hear something beautiful, and I what, what just happened to me? So this is the classic case of St. Paul having the flash of light and saying, you know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't know what hit him. All he knows is this flash of light and this voice came and he's blind, right? So he's got to figure it out and he's got to go do the intellectual work. So it actually started there with a sense experience. But if he just left it there and said, oh, it must have been the devil, you know, then so I'm going to be a devil worshiper. Then I'm just going just gonna to mute. I'm just going to mute myself real quick. Sorry. One second. Jesse, you're an idiot. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait. Did you guys hear that? Uh, hear what? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I just like to. I like to. Jesse, you're up, revealing but. your ontological reality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, beautiful. Your right. ontological reality is showing. <laughs> so, what knows beauty is the mind, but the mind acquires all kinds of information from the senses. So we don't want to say we don't believe in the senses or we don't believe in feelings. We do. Just they always have to be governed and intellect uh, governed and uh, ordered and assessed by the intellect. All right, so where are we driving this beauty bus to today? Well, if there's anything that people know about this Thomas Aquinas view of beauty, it's Who's called that? Thomas Aquinas. St. Yes. Thomas Aquinas, a great <laughs> medieval theologian of the Dominican order. One of the I know who he is, but for the people listening who time. <laughs> uh, Dominican, wrote the Summa Theologiae, among many other things, and there's a giant schools of thought around Thomistic understanding of things. He comes out of the Aristotelian uh, tradition, which, you know, in the, many ways... That's is different a, than the Pluto tradition? Yeah, pl the Platonic, <laughs> not the Plutonic uh, tradition. So, so it's a realist he, tradition. It is the realist tradition. So what we've been talking about is the Aristotelian Thomistic uh, method, and they kind of grow off each other, um, which in many ways starts with the senses, right? So we don't want to downplay the senses. In, in the Thomistic tradition, most sense information, you know, most intellectual information either starts with the senses or comes from uh, the senses. I think then, more than most, Dennis, isn't this a little maxim that uh, there's nothing in the intellect that is not first in the senses? I suppose, yeah, that would be a pure Aristotelian Thomistic way of thinking. Ooh. Of course, God could always show up and say, boom, I give you a flash of knowledge in the Holy Spirit. and Like St. Paul. Take it to some Did other way. Know, yeah, uh, this, this is a good point, though. I think even, I don't know if this is a Carl Rahner thing. It says uh, all immediacy is mediated. That is, even if God did come straight to your mind or soul or something like that, he would still do it through some sort of imagery. Now, this is a little bit different. It's not, it wouldn't be through your senses necessarily, but it's the nature of our ontology that we think and uh, that we, yeah, that we think and understand through images, whether they come through the senses or directly to the mind from God. Right. If I were going to try to communicate you to you the idea blue, I would either have to show you something blue that your eyes would see, or I'd have to write down the word blue or speak the word blue. Like, is there any other way to acquire knowledge in our human condition without some senses being involved? Or even if God wanted to plant that idea in your head, how would you know what blue is if you hadn't seen blue or heard the word blue or whatever? 
Yeah, so. even if you were if you wanted to communicate telepathically, whatever that mm-hmm. is, somehow and bypass all the senses, it would I'm still have to, it would still have to <laughs> that telepathy. I guess I talk like I know what this is. It what am I saying, you Jesse? It would still have no. to uh, have something that could register in terms of uh, of imagery, right? Or signs so or symbols. There are philosophers who. Oh, I'm just getting your message now, Dennis. Sorry, yes. there was a there was a delay. And you know, I said, "Put your pants on." <laughs> All right, <laughs> one leg at a time, like normal people. Yeah, okay. All right. So, however, we acquire this knowledge in this in this tradition, it's usually sense information. But if anybody knows anything about Thomas and his theory of beauty, they may know what's called the triad of constituent elements of beauty. And a lot of people do talk I about this. I love constituent elements. Yeah, constitu- that means they are constituted by these things. In other words, it's not optional, it's not on the edge, it's not a feather on the hat. It is the actual nature of the thing to be composed of this. So uh, human beings, by definition, are composed of intellect and will and vegetative powers and appetitive powers and so on. We're, they're not additions, not like putting a address on jesse it's like the initial what else do you want me to put on <laughs> just stay with the pants okay all right so do you know either of you know anything about the the, the trio of constituent elements i of beauty? obviously do not chris yeah i've heard you talk about this a lot is this the uh consonantia yes integritas yes oh wait i do and, know this <laughs> what's the other one oh, integritas it, he got that That's already. It's, oh, very, it's very clear, Chris. You should know. Claritas. Yay! How do you know this? Did we talk about this before? Well, I've, I've heard you talk about it in class. And things. Oh, and Jesse sat through the Sacramental Aesthetics uh, Twice. Class. Is that um, the one we had to do twice because yeah, I probably, messed up? Probably. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Remember, a beautiful thing. We call a thing beautiful when it reveals what it's it is. ontological reality. It's ontological reality. It's the very nature of its existence, its essence, as God understands it. So integritas... We translate as integrity, but it means wholeness, completeness, um, and not just in the earthly sense, but it, it means a perfection of being, right? And remember, a beautiful thing reveals being. So why would you have to have perfection of being to be beautiful? Because it's the ultimate goal. It, I mean, to be beautiful in the most beautiful way, the fullness of beauty. Right. If the more beautiful thing reveals more being, then the more being you have, the more beauty you can reveal, right? You have to have some participation in being to be, to exist, right? In existence, you can't reveal yourself without existence. And so the more perfection of being you have, the more wholeness you have, the more there is to reveal, the bigger your glass is, so to speak. So if you have a glass the size of the ocean, boy, that is a big glass and you have a fullness. Or a big glass ocean. Oh, well, that does happen at the, uh, in the book of Revelation. Good point, Jesse. In the book Brother of Revelation, the, the, uh, the, this, the throne of God is surrounded by a sea of crystal, clear as glass. It says, what, why would this, the, the throne of God be surrounded by a sea that's clear as crystal? And how would that be more beautiful than just regular old ocean? Because an ocean, even though it can still be beautiful, it's uh, a perfect ocean, uh, maybe I'm wrong here, would be an ocean that is still and isn't like being churned up. Mm-hmm. Is that right? That's a biblical image. So in the Old Testament and in, in the Psalms, it says the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The waters are frozen at his touch. 
remember, in the Old Testament, waters were often associated with chaos and destruction, the flood of Noah and storms. And Christ walks on water and he calms the storm. In other words, he's God and he can control the flood. So the, the, the mount, the temple mount in Jerusalem was this high mountain. In other words, it could never be destroyed by a flood. So God can freeze the waters to make them under his control. Well, by the time the world is restored, those waters have become crystal. So they're not just frozen like ice, but they're like diamonds now. So the creation has been brought to its perfection of being and is therefore more beautiful when it's brought to this eschatological perfection that it's supposed to have. Who knew that was going to come out of my mouth when you said whatever you said? We all knew that. Okay. Well, I didn't know that. It just <laughs> happened at the same time. So wholeness, perfection of being is an essential element for a thing to be beautiful because you can't reveal it if it's not there to be revealed, right? It's got to be there. Give us so, an example, another example. So a you very practical example, uh, a church without an altar. Is it revealing the fullness of churchness? No. No, because an altar is, a, is an essential element of a thing. And if you don't have it, you're not revealing the fullness of church. Or um, a gazelle with no legs. It's missing something of gazelle-ness, right? Because gazelles are so associated with their legs and their ability to jump and so on. So if you're not seeing them jump, you're not knowing as much about them as you should. And therefore, they're not revealing the fullness of their existence and therefore are less beautiful. So there you go. Good. Or a person who's, who's morally corrupted, right? They're not, they don't have the fullness of what they should have to be a, an upright Christ-like person. They have less than they should be. So they're not revealing the full capacity of humans to be good and true and beautiful. So that's wholeness. Or a Liturgy Guys podcast without Chris. It just immediately becomes a Coffee Talk episode. Well, which is of a higher order of existence, I suppose. Than probably. Right. probably. Liturgy Guys, but. Right, he really we, holds us back. Two if we want, three <laughs> if we want it to be a liturgy guys podcast, then it has to be there, right? Remember, we talked about this a long time ago with whether chocolate chip cookies, uh, whether uh, oatmeal cookies should have raisins in them. Obviously, oatmeal raisin cookies have to have raisins, or they're not oatmeal raisin cookies. And I know you oh, hate, hate I raisins. I love just, oatmeal raisin cookies when they're in a garbage can. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> there you go. Now, that's See, your I subjective that, response. Yeah, I think they're lying because they look like chocolate chip cookies. And then you take a bite of one, you're like, oh, this yes, is raisins. Yes, yes, absolutely. That, yes, so much yes. Yeah, well, that's your, dis, <laughs> your deformed subjective response to the objective perfection of oatmeal raisin cookies. Mama ain't but, raisin no fool. That's what I say. Yeah. Super tasters, of course, would take a raisin over a chocolate chip any day, right? That's just more tolerable. Anyway, enough of that. But the point is, it can't be an oatmeal raisin cookie if it doesn't have oatmeal and raisins in it, right? If it doesn't have them, it can't reveal that kind of cookie because it's just not there. It's got to be whole to reveal what it is. Okay, good. So how about good old consonancia, Chris or Jesse? Consona sounds together. Yeah, sounds um, together. Part, Literally, that's what it means. Consonare. So each of the, each of the parts is in proper relationship and proportion. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, uh, proportionality. Exactly. So you could, sometimes in English you could say consonants, but it's the same word. Uh, it's proportionality, and there's a million kinds of proportionalities. So if you want to design a door to get in your house, it has to be proportional to you, right? It can't be too small for you to get in or so big that you can't open it, right? It's got a proportion to its purpose, and that purpose is developed by its proportional relationship to a person. Um, or it can be any other thing. Um, in numbers, you know, the proportion is this high, this wide. However, the biggest one is that it's proportional to its teleological destiny. 
Telos. There's another band name, Teleological Destiny. Yeah, I like it. What does Teleological Destiny mean? It means, uh, go ahead, Jesse. Well, isn't that kind of a redundant phrase? Because Telos just means like the, the end of something or where something is supposed to be at its end. Right. And it doesn't mean the end, like the end of the world or the, you know, something goes out of existence. It means its goal, its purpose, its final purpose. That's called an end in Thomistic thinking. Um, so what's the final end of a chalice? What's the important, what's the final destiny of a, of a chalice? To hold Christ's blood. Right. So what should that chalice look like in relation to proportional to that important it should Goal. look like it's something worthy enough to hold Christ's blood. Exactly. So it should be proportional in its materials and its craftsmanship, but then it should be proportional to the priest's hands, right? So he should be able to pick well, it yeah, up. Well, yeah, it should be proportional to like what a chalice would be. So you wouldn't make it like really huge and you wouldn't make it really small because right. it still has to be a chalice regardless of whether or not it's holding Christ's blood or, or something else. Right. So you wouldn't want like a dollhouse-sized chalice if you're going to use it for... Sunday mass for a lot of people, right? So there's all kinds of proportionalities at work there. And it's a huge network of relations. So if you think about the proportionalities in your daily life, you get up because the alarm goes off. What are the proportionalities there? Uh, in regard to like how much I slept? Well, just whatever. There's about 10 of them right away. Well, probably the volume of the alarm, the right. time it's, it goes it's off. It's loud yeah. enough to wake you up, right? And you have ears that can hear sounds, so it's proportional to your capacity to hear. So it wouldn't be like a dog whistle alarm. That wouldn't do you any good. Right, or something you know, too low or too quiet. If it's too quiet, it doesn't wake you up. So already it's proportional to the loudness it has to have to wake you up. And, and then, I have to have set like seven of them if I'm serving at 8 a.m. mass because right. that's proportional to the number of alarms that I need to get out of bed. Right. So there's a universal, universal proportionality and then there's your specific proportionality, which is definitely necessary. You slip on your slippers, right? They have to be proportional to your feet or they won't, your feet won't go in them or they'll fall off. You turn on the coffee maker, but the button that turns it on is proportional to the size of your finger. And then the and you need to have a proportional amount of coffee to what you need. So like for me, about 12 cups. Right. And there's a recipe for coffee, right? If it's too weak, there's more water than there is coffee. And then two tablespoons per every six ounce of coffee. That's a proportion, right? And then that coffee is proportional to your brain because the caffeine stimulates your brain. And so you see that like the whole life is full of proportionalities. If, however, all those proportions are wrong, you can't properly call it beautiful because it's not revealing. So just take coffee. If you have two grains of coffee per gallon of water, is that really going to reveal like coffiness to you? No, absolutely not. Right? That's when you have an ugly morning and an yeah. ugly day. Well, yeah, you have a less beautiful morning because you, that coffee still has existence. It's just so lame, you know, like flat watered down coffee. Who wants that? And you, you, for you, Dennis, you drink coffee out of a very specially designed coffee cup by do, your best friend. That has your face on it. <laughs> Our faces. I saw you posted that on the, uh, the, the uh, podcast website. I'm literally drinking out of that cup right now. Oh, really? It, oh. It's a good coffee cup. It is. It is. It's proportional to your fingers because the handle mm-hmm. is big enough plus you know who doesn't want to look at themselves on their coffee mm-hmm. cup every morning mm-hmm. so now here's the question now that we know what proportionality is why do you need proportionality for a thing to be beautiful because it helps to reveal its uh, it, it's its being ontology yeah. is that it always comes back to that right does and it you reveal? need order you need order too because everything needs to be proper Otherwise, if something gets out of hand, then you start to get into chaos. 
Well, that's true. And so if the thing is meant to be part of an ordered reality, you have to have that ordered reality and that requires proportionality. So if you're going to say, I want you to know what a chalice is to someone who's never been to a Catholic church, and then you give them a, you know, a jelly glass that you're using. Oh, well, obviously a chalice, whatever goes in there is not that important. You give them a big chalice with gems on it and enamels and they're, whoa, what do you put in there? It's so important, right? So to know what a thing is, you have to see what it's proportional to, to know how You also it can't is. go overboard because then the chalice will seem like it's more important than what's actually inside of it. Right. All or right. the stuff you put on the chalice might seem more important than the chalice itself. All right. Mm-hmm. So now I'm the smart aleck guy in the back of your class, Dennis. What about that great big huge thurible that's in that church uh, uh, in uh, Spain? Oh, that's in, uh, San- in Santiago, St. James, right? Yeah. I think so. Is that yeah, beautiful? It's like, and it's yeah. on a, it's it's like swings across the church and yeah. falls of incense. Yeah, well, you tell me. Is it proportional to something or is it disproportionate? Well, I don't know. I mean it's it's obviously it has to be proportional to the building, otherwise it would go crashing into the floor. That's what I was, or, or well, that's what I was gonna say. <laughs> right. So there's a lot of in the church. Practical it, proportionalities there. But it seems uh I don't know. I mean, when you think of that church, what do you think of? Is this thorable? Mm-hmm. And but then you have to ask, that what's it's a thorable? What's it, it used well, for? It seems as having a disproportionate, uh, uh, it, it's, it's attracting disproportionate attention to the thorable, um, which I guess it, it, it still reveals Christ, but not. It seems to be out of proportion with, say, an altar and a chalice and a Eucharist and a tabernacle. I but, would but, agree if with it's, you. but if it's incensing the church itself, then it would be proportional, right? Well, this is where exceptions come in, right? So you have rules, and then you have exceptions that prove the rules. So when I was a Dominican novice many years ago, our uh, novice master, Father Walter, once a year would have us come down for adoration, and he would just go berserk with incense. And there was a little chapel, and the whole thing would be filled. Like, honestly, you could barely see him or the monstrance when it was done. And boy, was that cool. I mean, I'd never been in a chapel that was so incensey that like you felt like you were wading through this kind of um i don't know what like odd wonderful smelling reality that was so different from ordinary reality that we took it to this high disproportionate degree to make the truth so yeah take it to 11 baby and suddenly (laughs) we experienced and knew something more than we did if it had just been a little dinky thurible so sometimes exceptions disproportionate exceptions really reinforce the idea. So, you know, I know you beat uh, Isaac pretty regularly, uh, Jesse, when he what? when he's bad. Um, but like, you, you're going to remember this one. You took your sister's grape out in the backyard. You're getting a hundred lashes, right? Mm-hmm. Well, boy, I that, don't do that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I just want to be very clear. Jesse's not does not beat his children. Mm-hmm. Um, but boy, if they you, beat me, <laughs> if you did disproportionate, like that kid would never take grape again. Of course, it would come at a lot of. Uh, he might not take anything. Right. There'd be a lot of moral woundedness there, but the, uh, the exceptional thing often makes the truth uh, unforgettable. Um, so that's the funny thing about disproportionate moments. They're kind of funny, usually. That's usually where humor comes in. If the queen sits on the whoopee cushion, it's very funny. If you sit on the Whoopi cushion, it's not funny, right? Because it's more disproportionate to her dignity. What if Whoopi Goldberg sits on a Whoopi cushion? That's, That's still a whoopee, whoopee. disproportionate to her. Whoopee. So, uh, yeah, Whoopi. Anyway, but sometimes you re- you, it's funny because you know what the thing ought to be, and then it's not that, and that failure to be consonant is where often where we find uh, humor. And it's not beautiful, but it is funny. <laughs> How about the crucifixion? Is that... 
Is that a proportional? I thing? thought you were going to say, is that humorous or funny? And I was like, no. Well, I remember watching Bishop Barron's uh, first Catholicism series, and he said when Christ became a baby, that there was humor in that, right? That you should have expected God to show up with an army and just, you know, kick butt, God, right? Boom. But instead, he did the opposite of what we expected and the, the juxtaposition of opposites are where humor is found. So in a sense, it's God's sense of humor that he came as the weakest and he destroyed sin by being sin it's, uh, taking on sin itself and death itself. And so this juxtaposition of opposites becomes something of his nature. Dennis, I think I've asked you about this line before, uh, speaking of Spinal Tap references. Uh, there's this guy named Tony Hendra who uh, plays, uh, I think his name's Ian Faith in Spinal Tap. Anyway, he wrote, wrote this book called Father Joe. So I only know this uh, secondhand. But he talks about Meister Eckhart, who was a Dominican mystic in, I don't know, a long time ago. And he says that uh, God laughed creation into being. Mm. That's how he created. Not by speaking. He he laughed the word when he when he when he right, said it's, delight, it's delightful to him. Yeah. So, and that would be proportionate. So the crucifixion. You know, sometimes you get people who complain, "What kind of God would kill his own son? And why is violence at the center of redemption? And what is child, this divine child abuse? How can you love a God who would crucify his own son?" And so on. Oh, it's but proportionate. All right. What's it proportionate to? It's proportionate the to the to the offense. Yeah. So the the offense was so grave that man. Man himself could not atone for the offense. So God had to come down and atone for the offense on behalf of man. Yeah, you're so tratty, you guys. You're so pre-Vatican II in your thinking. What? What are you talking no, about? You're, you're right, right? The offense against okay. God was of infinite value, right? So Speaking a of offense, that was so offensive. The, the, <laughs> a sacrifice so the, of infinite value is necessary. But the love, the love of God for man is infinite, and that's yes, the expression of that. Right. Love. No greater love. Than so, to I mean, lay down your point. life for your friends, right? So, would you say the the crucifixion of Jesus uh, atop Mount Calvary is the most beautiful event ever? Yes, because the infinite not only became into the appearance of the finite, right? The, this is Father Ed Oakes's book from Infinity to Infancy. God gave up His own autonomy in a sense, and didn't just become into the appearance of human and subject to human powers, but became the lowest of the low. In other words, the greatest became the least out of the love of uh, creation. And so you say it's beautiful. It's not pretty, right, in our earthly sense, but it's beautiful because it's proportional and whole and complete in the method of salvation. God could have said, I love you yeah, this much. I'll send a slug down, you know, to get stepped on by somebody and then you'll be, no, it's not that. It's I'll send my own son. And when I send my own son, he'll be rejected and killed. And that's how much I love you. And I suppose that, you know, just keeping the kind of the connections going, that's why the mass and the liturgy uh, are also probably the most beautiful things you should be doing, uh, uh, experiencing throughout the week, because those have the greatest power to make present the most beautiful action of the world, which right. is Christ crucifixion. And they're supposed to sacramentalize the fullness of existence. So you have an eschatological character to the mass, meaning the beauty of the restored world at the end times. So everything done at mass should prefigure that fullness, which is a consonancia and an integritas. And if it doesn't do that, then you're not actually not encountering your own heavenly future, which means you're not being transformed by it. So beautiful liturgy has to be complete. You can't just leave out stuff. On the other hand, you have to be proportional to this heavenly reality. In other words, and otherwise you won't encounter that heavenly reality. All right, so the last right. one, the last one, claritas. See, is, yeah, integritas, consonancia, and now claritas. claritas. Now claritas translates as clarity, but that doesn't mean, you know, like seeing through a window. Uh, 
as they say in New York, clarity, as we say in the Midwest, <laughs> clar- clarity. Um, what does it mean to have clarity, Chris? Uh, is it that it's clear and obvious what the thing is to the senses? Yes, it has, it has to have the power. Clarity power to communicate? is the power to reveal ontological reality. Boom. Ah, so this is... Uh, I've heard use this example. Oh, I thought you were going to go into another Spinal Tap reference. No, no, no. give me time. So Wonder Woman's invisible jet. That's my favorite example, yeah. Even though it's clear, it has no claritas because it doesn't reveal anything. Right. Invisible things are lacking claritas. So you might have all your parts and they might be all in the right place and proportional. But if you can't perceive them, then they don't have the power to reveal themselves. Then you are not beautiful because you can't be perceived and so beautiful things have to have the power to reveal what they are if i were going to say to you you don't have the power to drive a car but i'd like you to go drive a car completely and proportionately you're like well obviously i can't do that because i don't have the capacity to drive a car i want you to go out into the fields of um nevada and tell me when you encounter all the radiation well i need to i need a geiger counter to measure radiation no no you have to be the one who has a capacity mm, to find radiation. Yeah. It's like, I don't have that capacity, so I can't do it. Um, are, are angels, do they have claritas? They have the power to reveal themselves, sure. But not necessarily to the senses, like we would think, because they're not sensate. Hmm. But they have other capacities that would be knowable, I suppose. Hmm. So, why do you need claritas to be beautiful? Because this one's almost redundant. It's necessary <laughs> for, uh, it's revelation. If it yeah. If it ain't got no claritas, it can't reveal, and therefore it's uh, contradicting the, right. the nature so of what it means to be beautiful. Beautiful things reveal their ontological reality. If they don't have the capacity to reveal ontological reality, it ain't going to be beautiful. That one is that one's a no-brainer. That's going to be the uh, title track of Chris's uh, folk band. It's going to be, if it ain't got no beauty. <laughs> <laughs> if it ain't got claritas, it ain't got beauty. Right. So when you see and it'll be just like the Spinal Tap album, completely black on the cover. <laughs> there you go, Justin. That is a nice. lack of consonantia, I would say, and certainly a lack of claritas. But here's the thing. Each one of these things is about revelation, right? Integritas. I, I can encounter the fullness of the reality, right? So therefore, I have some knowledge of what it is. Consonantia, everything's proportional. So when I encounter it, not just that it's all there, but how they are related and parts and proportion to their end and within themselves that gives me knowledge of the thing and then if it has the power to reveal itself that is the transmission of the knowledge of the thing now remember beautiful things are seen and understood in their completeness in their ontological reality and when they are that's what we experience as beauty so you can't have that experience of beauty if you're not experiencing the reality of the thing so it's not that hard. If your church is invisible, it can't be beautiful, right? If your Eucharist isn't there, it can't be beautiful. If your chalice doesn't reveal the importance of the Eucharist, then it's not revealing the Eucharist. It's not revealing chaliceness, and therefore it's not beautiful. So it's not that hard at the end of the day. Um, and then within that category, the ones that do this more are more beautiful. The ones that do this less are less beautiful. And then you can do a million different kinds of examples of application of these three things. Um, and that's the... Uh, but that's the, the cognitive principle around which it all, it all hangs. So what I learned today yes. is, is that uh, Wonder Woman's jet is just like angels because they have the ability to reveal themselves. Well, if you've ever seen Wonder Woman's <laughs> jet, how do you know that Wonder Woman's in her jet? 
Because there's like a dotted outline. Yeah. So they, have the to, they actually have to put a line around the invisible jet to make it visible. You know, otherwise, she'd just be sitting to us. She'd be sitting in the air. Now, you take all of this and apply it to the liturgy. Boy, there's a thousand ways to do it, you know. And we'll just let you guys do that by yourselves. So yeah, yeah, that's your we, We've been talking a long time, but apply it all to the liturgy. Is it revealing heaven? Is it revealing Christness? Is it revealing the new heaven and the new earth, the perfection that God has brought to the world? If it's not, it's not as beautiful as it should be. Well, and that's you know the critique now of some of this uh, early, the, this uh, immediate post-Vatican II liturgy is the the turn was kind of away from God, and it was about revealing the community. Right. So music started to be about the community and church uh, uh, arrangements and seating arrangements started to be about the community and where the priests sat started to be about the community and whatnot. And it started to become, I don't know, not as beautiful mm-hmm. as it is meant to be. And that's an integritas problem. If you just decide that mass is an earthly gathering remembering somebody's meal, then it's, it's not heavenly anymore. It's not the action of Christ. It doesn't involve the angels and saints. The heavenly component is God gone. That is a wholeness problem. You're missing stuff. It's also not proportional to the reality, so that's a consonantia problem. And therefore, it doesn't radiate the fullness of the reality, and therefore, it's not as compelling as it should the, be. This is, uh, not that this is easy. Again, I've heard you say these things a lot, and I wouldn't say that I have it all down, but it is much more um, practical and satisfying than I like this, and you like that, and she likes this, and I mean, it, 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 you can discuss these things in an objective sort of way now. Right, because you say all the time, what is liturgy by the definition in the uh, catechism? I like it. Okay, there's a definition, the participation of the people of God in the work of God. Well, what's the work of God? That's Christ at the right hand of the Father with the angels and saints, bringing all of creation back to the Father and drawing down these graces and, and gratitude and thanksgiving and pleading and offering. If that's the nature of the liturgy and your liturgy doesn't do that or reveal that, then you're missing something. If it doesn't have the heavenly component because the angels and saints are part of the mystical body or all of creation, the stars, the plants, the fish, all those things that cosmological part of liturgy, then you're actually experiencing less and it has less transformative power. If it's not glorified, if it's not brought to this high level of perfection, then we're just cheating people out of the encounter that they're supposed to have, which is supposed to be transformative. And if it's not revealing God, then it has less transformative power. This is where that beauty will save the world or, you know, the the new uh, path of, of beauty this is why it matters because it's full delightful it draws us in and then allows us to encounter it in the fullness if, if we're not encountering it in the fullness then why bother you know it's a, a lesser participation in the work of god all right i think we should answer a liturgy question and we should do so in a way that it has integritas kind of consonancia and claritas indeed for, first time for everything <laughs> <laughs> Chris, you're on fire today. You're I so, like it. You're so beautiful. You are so beautiful. beautiful. To me. But not to me. <laughs> you're nothing that we asked for. But we like you anyway. <laughs> you are so, so beautiful, beautiful to, to somebody. Me. To the Liturgical Institute. Well, if you want to serve the church, and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well.
Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this week we have a question from Nico. Nico says, I love linguistic stuff, but I'm having trouble seeing the etymological relationship of the words. You're having saying the word etymological. Gosh, I know. I'm having a lot of problems today. He's He says, he's. Uh, I'm having trouble seeing the etymological... <laughs> etymological relationship of the words noble and knowable as you stated in the episode noble simplicity good episode mm-hmm. yeah or was that just a homo oh my gosh <laughs> I, was, I was spelling this homophonicky way of the English speakers yeah, to understand means sounds the same Oh, man, this was a mouthful of a question well, but Nico, anyway Nico Nico cut me some slack here or, or is it Nico well yeah I don't know I mean I wouldn't just make it, oh, it sounds the same. It must be the same. I did a little research on this. So um, etymologically means the word origin. It, nobilis, in its first meaning, is well-known, famous, renowned, superior, splendid, high-born, etc. But it comes from the Proto-Indo-European root, G-N-O, which means to know. This is where we get the word Gnostic from, the sort of secret knowledge. And um, the well-known people, the known people, the knowable people were the Republic, uh, public officials in the Roman Empire. So uh, it actually comes from nobilis, which means knowable from the Latin infinitive noshere, which means to come to know or to know. So now, did the people who wrote Vatican II said noble simplicity means knowable simplicity, or did they just mean excellent, superior, splendid simplicity? Probably that's what they meant. But if you actually look at the word origin and do a little bit of exegesis on it, it's splendid, splendid and superior because it's knowable. That's the revelation of who the nobles are and who they are. And so I just did a little bit of um, commentary on that with, without presuming that that's what the council fathers uh, said. So nobilis uh, in Latin is that word uh, knowable, um, literally. Um, and that's where noble simplicity comes from and noble beauty as well. I both, both use that word. So that's where I uh, proposed that idea. Well, thank you for the claritas, Dennis. Oh, you are so welcome. And if it's claritas, that means it's knowable. And so. thanks for nothing, Chris. Uh, You're so, welcome. <laughs> Nico, I hope this answers your question, and I hope I can read the next question properly next week. But if you want to email us a question or ask us a question, email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys or tweet Dennis at DMAC Supertaster or tweet Chris at Nope. <laughs> I'm going to start a Twitter account that just says at nope, yep. and it'll just be your face. <laughs> All right. Thank you, and God bless. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. <laughs>